Um, my first message on the book of James was about a year ago now, and it was on a Wednesday night. And I, when I shared that, I, I didn't plan to preach a series, and I'm, I'm not really planning that now. But what I'm going to do this morning is go back to that some of that same material, not all of it, but some of it. Um, so some of you who were here, this will be a review for you. If, if you have a good memory, it will be a, a review for you. Uh, but I don't think that's a problem. Uh, so if you want to turn with me to James chapter 1, our primary text will be found in verses 2 through 5. And he says there, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And then from verses 6 to 11, James makes a contrast with the man that we discussed the last time we were in this book. It's the man whose prayers will not be heard, the man who comes in a self-righteous and a proud spirit, the man that James styles the rich man. And then after this brief tour, detour, we're brought back to verse 12 where he says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And then finally, and we'll only touch briefly on this, but he comes full circle again in chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, where we read, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it. Until he receive the early and latter rain, be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And then in verse 10, he says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. It would seem, from what we've just read, that James is very concerned with how we handle ourselves in the midst of temptation, trial, suffering, and affliction. These opening verses set for us the stage. And it's a stage that none of us really like to stand on, but it is one that is common to us all. The picture, or at least the backdrop in these first verses, is one of desperation. He says, when ye fall into diverse temptations. And we can read those words and we can pass by them very quickly and miss what is really being said here. The word temptations here means trials of any kind. And it's not necessarily enticements to sin, but a word that can be used of any trial in life. It is not always used in a negative way, but it is a testing, a trying, an experiment as it were. To see what the outcome will be. It is a crossroads. It is an opportunity to sin. But I think here in the context of James's letter, this word does most certainly mean or have the idea of enticement to sin. It, it, at the very least, it's a situation that can lead directly to sin. And I think that this is primarily because starting at verse 13, James expands on what he means in using this word, and describes the process of giving way to this temptation. There he says that it produces sin when they are drawn away and enticed. 
In fact, there he says something very important. He says there that God does not tempt, and it's the same word, any man. Because the temptation here was a temptation to sin. He says that the man there in verse 14 is literally dragged away of his own lust and enticed or allured and baited and deceived. And James is contending that God does not do this because that would be sin and God cannot sin. So the temptation in view here is a trial, a test. But I think the translators did well when they translated the word temptation. Robertson says in his word studies, trials rightly faced are harmless, but wrongly met become temptations to evil. Trials met in the wrong way can potentially, utterly undo us. And I think that this temptation that involves others, that this is a temptation that involves others, again, from the context, the prayer that we talked about last time, the prayer that will not be heard of verses 6 and 7, was that of the partial and proud spirit, the one who is looking at others. And there is a lot throughout this book that seems to indicate that this is a trial that involves a proud but a religious opponent, one that would probably call himself a brother but is erring from the gospel way. We see here another set of bookends with this, for the book begins here with this conflict, and it ends with the statement, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So I think the temptations of varied kinds have more particular application to those that involve interpersonal relationships. But very few temptations do not. And I want you to also notice that this temptation comes upon them suddenly. The word fall in the Greek has the sense of falling right into the middle of something. You are suddenly surrounded. It is a, it is a picture of one in battle being completely surrounded by the enemy. It's a pretty hopeless picture. This is a very bad situation. Like I said, it's a desperate picture. It's desperate. These temptations can come from all directions, and they can take many forms. They are of many colors. That is what the word diverse means. They come in as many shapes and contours as there are faces in the world. In one sense, all temptations are the same. For the scripture tells us that no temptation has taken us but that which is common to man. And James is laboring here to expound that. But every temptation is also unique. And we must not miss that either. There is no one-size-fits-all temptation. And as a result, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. We greatly err when we think, and we often do, that every situation has a rule or a principle that if just followed would make everything okay. You know, church constitutions, right, and ours was no exception, are rife with this kind of thinking. It, the thinking goes like this. It, it says, well, that was a bad situation. Let's make a rule, and, and we'll be able to handle it next time. But that doesn't work. Each person brings with them a different set of circumstances. Their life experiences are different. Each time a temptation comes, it comes in a slightly different way, with slightly different baits and lures. And consequences. This is not some monolithic temptation that we're seeing here, but it's a shapeshifter. There is not an answer already in the can for you to meet it with. It's different this time. 
It's not like the last time. These temptations are diverse, and because they are diverse, they're treacherous. It's alluring. It's enticing. You're being dragged along. You're surrounded. And it has come upon you suddenly. We have fallen right into the middle of this thing. When we find ourselves here, we're completely out of our depth. But none of this seems to phase James. He says, count it all joy when this is where you find yourself. It seems ludicrous at first. James, this is like the worst thing ever, right? This is the worst thing ever. And you're saying count it joy? James wants me to be happy in the midst of temptation? No, not necessarily. But if you can be, that's a wonderful thing. He does not actually say be happy. The text does not say be joyful. James does not say feel this. The words he uses are count and know. The word count here means to esteem it highly. And it carries with it a sense of authority. It is sometimes used to denote royalty or lordship. The esteem is one of authority. Believe this solidly. Hold it in high regard. Strong tells us that this word means to lead. That is to command with official authority. So we're being told that even though our senses are telling us otherwise, we are to command to lead our minds to esteem this temptation as a joyous thing. The word joy doesn't usually need to be, you know, defined. But again, according to Strong's, <clears throat> this word means cheerfulness and calm delight. That's amazing. James is telling us to command our minds to believe that this, this temptation, this trial, is actually something cheerful and calm. Something delightful. But James didn't stop there. He says, esteem these temptations and trials to be not just joyous, but completely joyous. It's not just joy in the text. It's all joy. Robertson, again, in his word studies, adds that this is not just some joy along with much grief, but rather it is whole joy. Unmixed joy. There's a very real tension here. And the tension is here because of the evil of the trial itself. We are told elsewhere in Scripture to flee from temptation, to pray that we would not be led into it. So it cannot be that James is here telling us that temptation in itself is a joyful thing, or even a thing to be desired. And he's not. For it's the result of the temptation that he is aiming at. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. It is knowing. It is the thought of the mind that he is calling for. We can count it joy. We can be in perfect peace and restful calm in the midst of trial and temptation. Why? Because we know something. Because we believe something. We know we, we don't necessarily feel it, but we know that the trying of our faith will work patience. And it is our knowing that causes us to count the temptation as an altogether joyful thing. 
Now, we've already talked about the word temptation and that the word means a test or an experiment. But the word used for trial in this verse is a different word. At first glance, it would seem that the words for temptation and trial are the same or at least are talking about the same thing, the temptations. But they're not. The word used for trial has an entirely different sense to it. It also means a trial or a testing. But not a trial to cast down or destroy or an experiment, but a trial to prove. A proving to show the authenticity of a thing. Uh, Like the merchant, you know, testing the gold to see its value. He doesn't mean to destroy it. It, it, He's far from it. He's simply trying to prove its worth. And that is the trial of your faith that is in view here. Peter has a beautiful companion to this thought of James in his first epistle. And we talked about this the last time. Peter, that first chapter is such a, uh, it, it almost mirrors the first chapter of James in many ways. Peter there uses the same contrast of temptation and trial, and he uses the same Greek words. And in First Peter, beginning, or chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." Notice what is being tried or proved in both of these passages. It is his faith. It is his faith. It is not his works. It is not how well is he doing in the temptation. It is his faith. That is significant. It is the trial of his faith that produces the joyful result of patience. It is not patience that produces faith. He believes something, and that faith works. It is the proving of his faith that produces the patience. And I want to pause for just a second here to say that we often get this wrong. We get it wrong in several ways. First, we miss who is doing the trying. This is not God trying us to see if we really believe. He knows that already. This is the man proving his own faith. Like David, when presented with the armor of Saul, he said, I've not proven this, right? He didn't trust it. It wasn't something he could take with him into battle. It had been unproven. This is the man in the temptation proving that his faith in Christ will see him through. Faith is a one-way street. We only receive by faith. There is no giving in faith. We do not hand faith 
to someone. It's just not like that. The merchant man that is receiving the gold proves it. He tries it. He wants to know that the gold he is receiving is real. That it has purchasing power. He is not going to trade with others his faith in the gold. He's going to trade the gold. He wants to know that the gold is real. It is the gold itself that is going to be traded. And he wants to prove it before he receives it. So here the proving is being done by the man in the temptation. And secondly, we often go wrong because we try to look at our faith. To color it. To somehow make it visible by blowing smoke on it like we do a a laser. To see its contours, its strengths. But it's not the quantity of our faith that matters. It's not even the quality of our faith. It's the object. You know, this is like trying to look at our looking. How do you do that? It has no substance of its own. Faith is nothing, really. You know that, right? There's nothing. Faith in and of itself is nothing. It's what the faith looks at. Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. That means that it has no substance of its own. That it only takes on the substance of the object of the faith. It's like eyesight. We we can only receive light into our eyes. You can't send light out of your eyes. It's the image that's looked upon that is received. And that's why we say, look to Christ, right? Because looking is so much like faith. That's why the children of Israel were bid, look at the serpent on the pole. It was a picture of faith. And what is tried here in this text is the genuineness of the faith. And that can only be known in the object. Is the eye looking to the right place? Are you beholding the right thing? Is your trust in the right person? We go wrong when we look at anything other than the finished work of Christ to recommend us. The question is, what are you looking at? It is not faith in faith. It is not faith in our repentance. It is not faith in our suffering, faith in our holiness. It is not faith in our orthodoxy. No. It is not faith in the Spirit's work in us. It is faith in Christ's work for us. Every false faith turns itself inward. Sometimes in ways that are hard to perceive because it's clothed in such religious garb. Every false faith looks subtly to the work of man. In our circles, this is usually manifested in our view of sanctification much more than our view of justification. I've actually heard it said that we are justified by faith, but sanctified by the law. But that is so very, very, very wrong. I want to say to such a one, this only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? What you find when you test that faith is fool's gold. The true faith, the faith that passes the test, is faith that looks outside of us 
and to another. If we look anywhere in our temptations, as I said, but to the finished work of Christ, we move dangerously close to the rich man that James is condemning. It seems backwards to the natural mind, but it is by faith that we overcome. That is what James is saying here. It is our faith that looks beyond the trial and can count it joy. And it is the joy that is set before us that holds us steadfast in the trial. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But how does faith produce the patience that we need to endure this temptation? And what does patience here even mean? Thayer's tells us that patience means cheerful endurance or constancy. And it has an element of hopefulness. Strong says that this endurance is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose by even the greatest trials and sufferings. As another puts it, it's staying power. It is that ability to cheerfully stand strong in the face of anything that the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw at us. If you have the shield of faith, you can quench any fiery dart. But there is a work that patience does too, and faith is the mother of it all. We can't forget that. The scripture tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. Here we see that it is approving of the faith that puts the whole thing in motion. But here's where the real work begins. Verse 4 tells us, let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And I, I just want to comment here that perfect doesn't mean perfect in the way we normally use that word. It means complete. In fact, that's usually how it's used in Scripture. And James is saying, let the work carry on until it's done, until it's finished, until it's complete. This is hard. The flesh wars against the spirit right here. This is the pinch point in the Christian life, to let patience have its perfect work. All men redeemed or not face temptations. And a great deal can be done in the flesh to avoid them, resist them, and overcome them. We do not like to walk by faith. We would far rather walk by sight. It's just our nature. Naturally, we would do anything to get out of a difficult or or an uncomfortable situation. Men will lie, men will cheat, men will steal, men will kill. Anything to avoid discomfort. But this is just falling out of one temptation into another. How often is it that a lesser temptation follows right on the heels of a greater one? And it is easily succumbed to. A man is tempted to look at things he should not online, but instead watches a Hollywood movie and congratulates himself on his victory. It's still the lust of the eyes. But he didn't know that the bait was actually the lesser evil all along. Or perhaps a directive is given that goes against conscience at work and it is avoided with a lie. There are many ways that this can play itself out. Maybe a parent is tempted to explain away a child's sin, to use psychology instead of the rod, because it's just too difficult to persevere in love for that child's soul. Maybe there's a difficult person in the church and you just avoid them because it's easier. The point is that temptation can come in many shapes as James has said, and there are always ways to escape that are fleshly. God makes a way of escape, but that way is never the way of the flesh. When we use unbiblical means 
like psychology, or even seek rest from our troubles and worldly things, worldly entertainments, worldly things. When we run to lesser or little sins to get away from bigger ones, when we settle for a fleshly answer to our difficulties, we are short-circuiting this important work of the Spirit in our lives. Like Israel of old, we often resort to trusting in man instead of resting, wrestling in the Spirit. We are running to Egypt for comfort and protection rather than trusting God to see us through. Sometimes we do need to flee and flee with everything that is within us. Sometimes we need to fight. We need to stand. And we need to fight as if our very lives depended upon it. And we need wisdom to know the difference. We are told to seek it. But there is a wisdom that is from above, as James says, and a wisdom that is from beneath, that is earthly, sensual, of the senses, and devilish. We must be sure that we are on the right footing here, or we will be undone. The only sure footing, as I said, is that of grace through faith. James tells us to let patience have its perfect work, but Paul expounds on this further in Romans 5 where he not only outlines this progression, but he shows us its end. He says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. And patience, experience. And experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The end that is in view is the love of God shed abroad in the heart of the tempted one. And why is this important? Because it gives us the key. First, because it is knowing that God loves us that is our only sure defense against temptation to begin with. Every sin in the believer's heart stems from unbelief. We think that we are looking at something that is better than what God has for us. We think that we will be more gratified by blowing our top than by keeping our cool. We think that God is really, after all, holding back something from us that is better. Now, that may not actually be the conscious thought of our mind, But that is what's at the bottom of our thinking when we sin. They're hard thoughts about God. We think that patience, endurance is not worth it. That the temporary pleasure of giving way to the flesh in this particular way at this particular time is better. If we really believe that God was working in love for our souls, the temptation would have no power. None. So not only does the love of God keep us from sin in the midst of temptation, but it also is this belief that this love has not changed that restores us when we do sin. We will never be honest about our sin until we rediscover that God loves us. No one ever truly repented without this. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Think about it. The the last person in the world that you will go to when you're in trouble, is the one that you think will do you harm. The one that does not love you. You're not going to go to that person. You're not going to run to them and say, oh, help me. You're just not. It is this belief of God's love 
that sets the whole thing in motion. It is the love of God shed abroad in the heart. We must believe, first, that God is good. That his ways are better. And we need wisdom to see it. And that is provided too. Verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Wisdom for what? Well, for the temptation. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. We need to know what to say, what to do, how to respond, how to think. So we're told, if this is us, if we find ourselves here, ask God, and he will give. This verse has a very matter-of-fact feel to it. God gives liberally, or in simplicity. There are no strings attached. He just gives. You ask, and he gives. There is no hint of a failure to provide here. It is simply ask for it and God will give it. He will give you what you need in abundance. But as if that is not enough, he adds that this gift will also come without upbraiding. He will not chide. He will not rail. He will not taunt you with it. He will not be, it will not be thrown back at you. It will just be given to you. James is talking about God giving wisdom, but look down at verse 17 where he says, every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This is not just some random statement. Look at chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Do you see it? The good and perfect gift from above is the wisdom from above. If then ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? That good and perfect gift is the spirit of wisdom. Did we not just read in Romans that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us? The Spirit of Christ, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God, in answer to our cries of help, does not just give us wisdom. He gives us himself. Isn't that what James is saying when he says, count it all joy? So it's this knowing, this believing that God is. And that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him, that works itself out in the real experience of grace and temptation. And that experience springs up into hope that produces more of a sense of God's love. This is really the heart of this, the engine, if you will, of the Christian life, faith working by love. We must not use fleshly means to overcome. We must not lean on the flesh for comfort. This is a fight of faith. It is knowing it is believing. But we must also not allow ourselves to look at others, to lay the blame elsewhere. We must keep our eyes on Christ only. For this work to go forward, we must not look at others. Our prayers of faith for wisdom in verse 6 are not those that are looking at the other person, as we just said. We saw in the previous message that that kind of praying, God will not hear. That kind of prayer is the prayer that God utterly rejects, the one that says, oh, what about them? No, Instead of going to God with a complaint upon our lips about how unfair or unmerciful or how wicked this or that person is, 
instead of working over and over in our minds the look they gave us or the word they spoke or the action they took, we must realize that the only work we can really concern ourselves with is the one that is going on in our own hearts. This patience, as it works, causes us to see that God is doing something in us. Peter, when he wanted to know about God's dealing with John, was told, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. And we would do well to do the same. If we believe that God is sovereign, (laughs) and we do, then we must also believe that not even a stubbed toe is something that is beyond him. He says to us that he knows when a hair falls to the ground, that he sees the sparrow fall, that he holds the heart of the king in his hand, and he turns it whithersoever he wills. That he even makes our enemies to be at peace with us. Do you really think that somehow he is not lord over your spouse's sharp tongue? Do you really think that the flat tire or the disobedient child is not also completely, completely in his control? We need to walk patiently with our God and discover the things that he is trying to show us. We have quite enough work to do in our own souls, our own sinful hearts, without trying to do it in the heart of someone else. There are no accidents. There are none. And even sin in in us is not wasted. There's always something to learn. There's always an experience of God that is waiting if we will just patiently look for it. The worst thing we can do when we fall into sin, when we fail in this resisting of temptation, is to entertain those hard thoughts of God in it, to try to wiggle out of it by calling it by some other name, to blame someone else or our circumstances for it, or worse yet, God himself. We must face it, own it, and go forward. Learning what it is that brought us there. Experience in both the resisting and the failing helps us forward. And I'm not saying it's okay to fail. There's always loss. There's always loss when we do. I'm simply saying that when we do, the, when we do fall, the best thing for us is to realize that our standing before God is not in success or failure. It's in the finished work of Christ. When patience is working experience, there is hope for the next temptation because we overcome not by our effort, but by the blood of the Lamb. It teaches us, it teaches us that. It teaches us that this is where our strength lies. It's not in us. It tells us that we can overcome again because the wisdom is not our wisdom and the strength is not our strength. It's not in us. We learn What brought us there? And we can better avoid it. We grow and and more fully understand the love that holds us in it and keeps us from it. This is one of the most important things that a parent does. It's Father's Day, so I'll, I'll speak to the parents, right? I said that we must deal with our own sin and not the sins of others, but I do not mean by that that we never deal with other people's sin. We we do. We must. But we can only do that well. When we have first learned to deal with our own sin in this way. When our dealing with the sins of others is gracious and is designed to strengthen or prove their faith, not to destroy the sinner. And and you don't want an elder, right, that doesn't understand this. James 3 makes that very clear. But I'm talking to parents. 
If you are not dealing with your children's sin as sin, and bringing them to the place where they own it, and seek God's gracious help in overcoming it, whatever else you are doing, you are not helping them. If you are not bringing them to see that it is not about the other child or about their circumstances, that it is about them, you're teaching them to be the rich man. If there is no recognition of sin, there can be no repentance. If there's no repentance, there can be no peace in the heart. They simply become more prideful, more unruly, more self-righteous, more independent. And there are no autonomous people in this world. There are none. And those who think that they are, are truly deceived. They're miserable creatures. If you are allowing your children to make excuses, to avoid the real issues, to continue on in their independence, do not be surprised one day when they walk away from the faith that you hold so dear. Are you teaching them to let patience have its perfect work? Or are you just letting them go their own way? They must know, and this is important, they must know that you love them completely. You must gain their hearts. You must keep them. But they also must know that you will not allow them to escape the responsibility for their actions. They must know that you are working for their good. But the reality is that they do not have a choice in the matter of obedience. You must not allow them to make excuses, to call sin by another name. There is no grumpy in the word of God, but there is sinful anger. There are none of the silly psychobabbles of our day. There are no love languages there. There is no special case because of age or sex or whatever. They are, they are not just being boys. It does not matter who had it first. It doesn't even matter who owns it. There are no morning people in the Bible, and there are no people in the Bible who do better at night. There are selfish ones. There are slothful ones. There are prideful ones. And there are envious ones. We don't get a pass because we have a headache or tired or we're sick. When we have just decided to call sin by something other than sin. Nor do we get a pass because of someone else's sin. No one makes you sin. It is your choice. And saying, it is the woman, she gave it to me. It doesn't work. Sin is sin. And we must deal with it as such. That is the work of patience that is before us. We are to let patience have its perfect or completed work in us so that we can be perfected or finished entire without anything lacking in us. This, this phrase literally means complete in every part. A perfect or complete man made in the image of God. That is the goal in front of us. And this hope does not fail. For look at what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. It seems like he's just repeating himself here, but he's not. There are significant differences. Earlier, we saw that they were to count it joy. Here, 
we are told, matter-of-factly, this is a blessed man. This is a happy man. It's no longer an admonition. It's a matter of fact. They are blessed. No uncertainty. Just blessed are those that endure temptations. Here James is no longer saying to believe it, but that it is already realized. And it makes sense when you look at it because the next part of the sentence says, he has already been tried. Literally, this could have been translated as having become approved. So what we're looking at here is future. At that day, when the temptations will have ended and the crown of life will be given. This is where faith becomes sight. Notice also it is no longer the faith that is being proved, but the man himself. That he is already approved. It's already done. Here in verse 12, we see the final blessed end of this man that by faith has overcome. He is a blessed man. He is a happy man. And again, is it any wonder that James tells us to count it all joy? This man is given a crown. And it's a crown of life. And this phrase, crown of life, is only ever used one other place in Scripture, and it's in Revelation, where we read, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Sounds like a rich man. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. It's very similar, isn't it? Now this crown, I don't think James here is using the imagery of the crown of the Greeks and their sports. All right? there's, there's many images of crowns in the scriptures. The, the Greeks would put a wreath on the head of the man who won the race or, or whatever. That would have been odious to James. <laughs> to, to use a, a, that type of imagery from those types of activities. I don't think, James, that's what he's saying. His hearers wouldn't have even responded well to that. I think what is being put before us here is a royal crown. It, it's not one of merit. It's a bloodline. Th- this crown shows us that the life here spoken of is that highest and best life, the the abundant, the everlasting life. It is eternal life. And it's a wonderful thing. As, As we learn to trust him more, we love him more. We love him more, and that gives us the ability to trust him more completely. And here he rewards those who love him. There is nothing of merit in this. This is a crown that was purchased by faith, not works. This crown is not given, as I said, because we endure, but rather because we love. We love, and because we love, we endure. That's the beauty of this. We know that we will be conformed to Christ, and that the temptation we are facing is actually working in us, and this produces a peaceful, joyful, steadfastness of heart in it. We do not have to feel it. We must simply know it. We must believe it. Like our elder brother, we will learn through the things that we suffer or endure. We see temptation. God sees an opportunity to to reveal himself in us, to sanctify us, to purify us, to bring us closer to himself. Again, putting before us one more time the end in view, God means to bless and not curse. So the question is not really, how can I be joyful? But rather, how can I not be joyful? 
when I can see that these things are truly meant for my good. But I want to put before you one last thought in closing. And it's a simple thought, but it's, it's one that's helped me a lot. God is not just working in us. He is working through us. These temptations do, more, do, do, do one more thing. And we see it especially in the life of Job. He is using the trials and temptations in our lives that we cannot even imagine. And Job certainly couldn't see it. He didn't know what God was doing. They show for all eternity through us who God is. Let me explain. James chapter 5 tells us that Job is a perfect example of this. He says there, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, there are many in history that we can look at and say, those were great men. Those were great women. Hebrews 11 tells us of those people, right? Who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned, the flight, turned, to, uh, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead again to life. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We call that chapter the Hall of Faith, right? Because it's a veritable who's who of, of the heroes of the faith. These were not extraordinary people. They were not superhuman. They walked by faith in an extraordinary God, but they were ordinary men and women. If you'd seen David acting like a crazy man before the Philistine king, or Elijah running from Jezebel, you would not at that moment have said, well, they need a place in that chapter. If you had watched Sarah keeping house, or Moses watching Jethro's sheep, you would have not said these are great ones. You would have not seen the things that made them great until the temptations came. In much the same way that a Medal of Honor winner is not necessarily known for his courage until he has found in the heat of the battle, David was a shepherd boy until the giant defied the armies of Israel. We are created to be image bearers, to show the invisible God to the created universe. But without temptation, without evil in the world, there were things that we could have never put on display. Things that have been drawn out of the heart of God by the existence of evil. They were there, but were hidden from eternity past. There was no way for us to show forth his character in all its fullness without, without temptation. Had not evil entered this world, the garden would have been a very good place to live. It would have been. We've been there now, right? And just enjoying all the bounty. 
but we would have missed so very much. God in his love wanted more for us. His desire was for us to know him in all his manifold glory. He wanted to unite us to him as sons, and in doing so, draw out of us all the virtues of manhood that were manhood made in the image of his creator. If sin had not entered, we would have never known what mercy was. We could have never experienced forgiveness or long-suffering or patience. Those would have remained locked up in the heart of God with no avenue for expression. We could have been told about them, I suppose, but that's all. Years ago, I, I stumbled across a lecture from a college professor on rainbows. He was strictly dealing with the science of it. He wasn't a believer, but it was fascinating. Did you know that no light escapes a rainbow? That's why the sky around the outside of the rainbow is darker than the inside. The sky around it is not pitch black because the light from behind shines through. But no light escapes those water drops. Every single one of them points the light back toward the center. And that's why it's lighter in the center than it is on the outside. I didn't know that. That was pretty neat. And because of the angle that our eye sees the water drops, each water drop is only showing us one color. We only see, and if we were to look at that drop by itself, it would just be green or whatever. It's, it, as it falls, right, it changes. But there are literally billions or maybe trillions, probably trillions, of water drops that are all unique in their display, and they're all constantly changing. And, and why do I bring this up? Well, Revelation tells us that there is a rainbow around the throne of God. And I just couldn't help myself but to draw an analogy from it as I was watching that lecture. We are the image bearers. Our light is a reflected light. Our lives are different. And while it's true, as I said, that there has no temptation taken you, right? But that which is common to man, like these drops of varying shades, no two can be exactly alike. They were all needed to create the rainbow. And their light is all reflected back to the center. But they all have a tale to tell. We all have different experiences, different genetics, different circumstances, different family backgrounds. So the way I face a particular temptation will in some ways be the same, but in other ways vastly different from the way you do. What might create terror in one heart might produce pride in another or envy or lust. The point is that none of us are able to create the rainbow alone, but all of us together can. Obviously, even the whole church and all of her glory will still just be a dim reflection of the glory of God. But I think you see where I'm going with this. There are ways in which only you can glorify God in the difficulties and the evils that you face in this life. Only you will be able in just that way, at just that time, in just that place to reflect the image of God in your response to trouble. With all the countless ways your life has been woven into the lives of others, your loving Father has brought you to the spot that is perfect for just that moment to reflect gloriously some aspect of his character that no one else could. Every temptation you face is an opportunity. Every victory is like one tiny droplet of water sparkling in that vast rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. We are image bearers. And a large part of bearing that image now is done in the midst of the very things we call temptations. 
when every tear is wiped away, when we are translated finally and completely from darkness into light, we will no longer have anything to be courageous about. We will no longer have fears to overcome in faith. We will be unable there to fight the warfare that we fight here. It will not be open to us. We will still have, we will, we will have no need to resist lust or to show mercy or perseverance. There will be no heroic deeds done there. No acts of selflessness. No one's going to be selfish, right? No need for restraint. There will be no murder, no envy, no pride, no fear of man, no fear of anything. The point is that there will be nothing to wrinkle the brow or ruffle the feathers. There will be no temptations. There will be no more trials. Once this life is done, that chapter will close. We will no longer be able to bear the image of God in that way. For all eternity, our time here will showcase like Job's life showcases to us, right? Our lives will showcase those attributes of God that could only be displayed through us as we faced evil in this world. There will be other things for us to do. Heaven will be a wonderful place. It's not like we're going to run out of things to do, right? But this brief window of time, when we can shine in a world that has evil present, will no longer be open to us. The sun will set, and the opportunities we have to place those little sparkles of victory over temptation, those glimpses into the image of God, into that rainbow, will be extinguished. There will be new chapters for sure that will open before us in those ages to come. But doesn't this thought make you want to count your temptations as a joyful thing? Doesn't it make you think, I get to do this now? I get to do this now? And I'll never get this opportunity again. You don't have to succumb to temptation. Young man, you do not have to look. Young woman, you do not have to lose your temper. You older ones, you do not have to be afraid. You young ones, you do not have to disobey. There is a way of escape. There is wisdom to meet whatever temptation you find yourself in. But it all begins with the love of God in your soul. It is breathtaking. When you try to take it in, he's called you to so much more than you can imagine. He's not just working in you. He's working through you. And if that were not enough, he says there is a crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The hymn writer said it best. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy. Amen.